Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. All right. Well, for one last time, the book of Revelation can be broken down into three main parts. Part one is chapter one. It has to do with things past It had to do with John's vision of the exalted Christ. Part two was chapters two and three, which had to do with things present to the Apostle John, the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And then part three, chapters four through 22, things future, the consummation of the kingdom, which was prophecy. And the purpose of that third part, purpose statement, is to give believers the advanced history of how Jesus Christ, by means of judgment, becomes king with a view towards calling them to faithfulness and godliness. And we know that that judgment comes after the church has been raptured, which means caught up to heaven, and during a seven-year period known as the tribulation, where there are three waves of judgment, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bulls. And those judgments culminate in the destruction of Babylon, which is then followed by um, this chart with the order of events, which comes to a head at the second advent of Christ, his glorious appearing in which he defeats all his enemies at the battle of Armageddon, and he ushers in the kingdom age, which reminds us that we've actually encountered four different ages in the book of Revelation. Chapters 1 through 3 were the church age, which ends with the rapture. Chapters 4 through 19 are that seven-year tribulation age, which ends with the second coming of Jesus. Chapter 20, the kingdom age, the thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus on earth, which ends with the squashing of Satan's final rebellion and the great white throne judgment, which is then followed where we've been the last few weeks, the eternal age, chapters 21 and 22. It's an age that's characterized by the word new, as evidenced by a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a new intimacy, a new existence, a new everything, bringing us today to the final chapter, Revelation 22, in which we encounter final features of the new Jerusalem, some final instructions, a final invitation, and a final benediction. Now, it's a lengthy passage, but I really have appreciated, uh, especially the last few weeks, being able to stand together out of reverence for the inspired God word. So would you please stand together as I read it? Revelation 22 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him." They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. 
I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates." Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, how we thank you for this journey through this beautiful, beautiful book. Uh, Such a worshipful book, such a challenging book, such a convicting book. God, I pray that we would finish well today, hearing your Spirit's voice speaking to us, that it would not just be more information for our heads, but it would be transformation for our hearts that we would be different because we've encountered your word. This is our prayer today in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So in this final chapter of Revelation, we encounter final features of the new Jerusalem. We encounter final instructions, a final invitation, and then a final benediction. And so let's first of all look at the final features of the new Jerusalem, which we weren't able to get to last week. There were just so many of them. It's like we got to draw a line somewhere, so we did, and we have two more to talk about. And the first of these features is the river of life. The river of life. Look with me at verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Now, how many of you were a little alarmed last week when I said that heaven is a city and you're going to have to spend eternity in a city? Right? I know more than a few of you. Uh, well, this, this should give you some hope. This should give you some encouragement that the new Jerusalem includes a river, some elements of country living, which this river is so beautiful. It signifies our continual satisfaction, our continual satisfaction in the New Jerusalem. Don't worry, you won't be discontent in this city whatsoever. It's an unending flow of life-giving glory from the very throne of God. Isn't that beautiful? It will bring continual refreshment to us with its crystal waters. 
But I think it's important for us this morning to take careful note of the fact that we can taste this today. This isn't just something for the future in one day, in the by, in the by and by. Jesus said in John 7, 37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of what? Living water. And so let us not underestimate the access that we have today to this river of living water, that it is meant to be, in some degree, a reality in our lives right now. Rivers of living water from Jesus Himself are to bring refreshment and satisfaction to us right here, right now. Now, what we know in part in that reality today will one day be realized fully in the New Jerusalem, just like so many other things, but let us not lose sight of our access to living water today. So the first of these two features of the New Jerusalem is this river of life. The second is the tree of life. You've heard of that tree before, haven't you? It signifies our continual sustenance, our continual sustenance. Look with me at the second half of verse 2. It says, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Now we've encountered the tree of life before, haven't we, in the scriptures? Where was that? Back in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, and God was pronouncing judgment and curse upon all creation, and it says in Genesis 3, 24, he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, why was that? Well, it was because the wages of sin is death. And the tree of life is completely incompatible with the curse of sin. And so it was guarded by cherubim with a flaming sword. And I think there's also some theological argument to say that had Adam and Eve eaten of the tree of life in that cursed state, they would have remained in that state. And so we know God's wisdom and God's provision in that. A lot of times when God says no, just like a parent It is absolutely for our well-being. But now in the eternal age, the curse of sin has been removed. That curse that prevented Adam and Eve from having access to the tree of life is gone, and the tree of life is now available to all. It's yet another example, a beautiful example, of how revelation brings everything full circle, doesn't it? Paradise was lost in Genesis, but paradise is now regained in Revelation. Humanity was cut off from the tree of life in Genesis, but now it is readily available in Revelation. And as you can imagine, this tree isn't your everyday tree, is it? It's got some interesting qualities. It says in the second half of verse 2, it has 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And I love that because I believe it speaks of great variety and creativity that we'll experience in heaven. If you're worried about floating on a cloud and being bored for eternity in heaven, that just simply isn't going to be the case. It will not be bland or boring. And while heaven is eternal and it is outside of time, the fact that this verse mentions months, I think it could very well mean that there is some sense of seasons in heaven. Again, contributing to its creativity, its diversity, its variety. But what I do have a question about regarding the tree of life is this whole idea where it says, the leaves of the tree 
were for the healing of the nations. Now, does that strike anybody as a little odd? What's odd about that? Well, this is heaven, right? There's no sickness in heaven. There's no death in heaven. So why would we need healing? That seems like healing would be obsolete and unnecessary. Interestingly, this word for healing comes from the Greek therapeia, from which we get our word therapy. And so I don't believe this is so much about fixing sickness, because there will be so no sickness in heaven, as it is about enhancing our living, kind of like supernatural, eternal vitamins or supplements, or in the sports world, we might say PEDs, but that has a little bit of a negative connotation to it, doesn't it? But um, at any rate, an enhancement to our living in heaven from these, tree, these leaves of the tree of life, so that we experience the ultimate in quality of life. Can you imagine if you could sell those today online, right? So those are the final features of the New Jerusalem that we didn't get to last time. We've got the river of life and the tree of life. Now we have final instructions, and there are four of them. In light of all that we've experienced in Revelation, we are instructed to do four things. We're instructed to walk, worship, witness, and work. And so let's look at each one of these briefly, and let's evaluate ourselves. How are we doing with each one? First of all, we are to walk. We are to walk. Look with me at verse 6. It says, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. That, that phrase, trustworthy and true, are the words that John has received. It reaffirms that all that we have just experienced in Revelation is not a fairy tale. It is not fiction. Rather, it is prophecy describing actual events that are yet to come. And just as the prophecies about Jesus' first coming were fulfilled in painstaking detail, so these words about Jesus' second coming are trustworthy and true and will be fulfilled in painstaking detail. They will come to pass. And so in light of this, Jesus says in verse 7, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, what does that mean to keep it? To keep it. You know, for too many, to keep it means you have a whole bunch of copies of the Bible around your house and different bookshelves and nightstands, but they're collecting dust. You you keep them, they belong to you, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. This is an altogether different kind of keeping. This is the kind of keeping found in 1 John 2, 3, where it says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Here, keeping has to do with obedience. Obedience. We are saved by God's grace, but the evidence of that saving grace in our lives is our obedience to God's commandments. And so to keep the words of this prophecy means to walk in holiness today. That's what it means, to walk in holiness today. Remember that purpose statement that we looked at earlier? Let's look at it one more time. It says, to give believers the advanced history of how Jesus Christ, by means of judgment, becomes king with a view towards calling them to faithfulness and godliness. You see, revelation is to be a great stimulant to our holiness, to our pursuit of purity. 
because we are instructed to keep the prophecy, to walk in obedience. What we learn about the future is to influence greatly how we live today. And so when people say, well, how is this even relevant, especially if we are people who believe in a a pre-tribulation rapture, what does all of this have to do if we're not going to be here? Again, a view towards calling us to faithfulness and godliness. We live today in light of tomorrow. Well, this is expounded even more in verses 14 and 15, where it says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. What what is washing our robes referring to? It's talking about our commitment to be a pure bride when Jesus returns. Imagine showing up at a wedding, and the the bride is all disheveled, and the, the wedding gown is torn, and it's soiled, it's dirty, and you're like, what's up with that bride? That bride didn't care enough to at least run a comb through her hair and to get cleaned up a little bit, or at least to take care of that wedding gown. We would be appalled. We would be just thinking that was outrageous, and yet, might that describe the church today? And so, as a bride, we are put to put forth an immense amount of energy to be stunningly beautiful, to be pure when Jesus returns. Well, verse 15 gives us the flip side of that coin, the contrast. It says, in in contrast to those who are keeping the commandments are those outside, the dogs and sorcerers. Now, this isn't like God's got something against dogs, okay? These are those uh, stray, ravenous, wild dogs that uh, cause all kinds of mayhem, and dogs were viewed to be unclean in that culture. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. It's interesting that in the last three weeks, our text every single week has made a clear and concrete distinction between those who will be in the New Jerusalem and those who will be out of the New Jerusalem. And so if you're seeing an intentional theme here that's very much on purpose, Jesus wants to make sure that we get this. There is a line. Those who are in, those who are out. And those who are in are those who are washing their robes, who are keeping the prophecy. Living today in light of what has been revealed about tomorrow. So, first of the final instructions is to walk. The second is to worship. And for me personally, in our study of Revelation, I think this is what maybe surprised me the most. What stood out to me the most is just how worshipful this book is. It just gives us such beautiful pictures of of God the Father, the throne room, and Jesus, the Lamb. And when you put all of that together, it's no wonder that John just falls on his face in worship and adoration. One of those occasions is in our passage today in verse 8. He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. So, okay, John, uh, first the good news. Great job by knowing that everything that's been revealed to you is worthy of falling before God in worship, but John, the bad news is you're worshiping the wrong being here, right? For the second time. This happened also in chapter 19. And so John just gets overwhelmed and overcome and falls on his face before the angel. And um, so good news, bad news for the apostle John here. And so the angel rebukes him in verse 9. The angel said, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. 
And so there it is. In response to all that we've experienced in the book of Revelation, we are instructed to worship God. And so I hope as you take this with you, that it will be a book that you return to time and time again, and it will cultivate a deeper sense of worship in your life. And we're actually given a couple worship prompts in this passage in verses 13 and 16. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, which pretty much covers it, doesn't it? There isn't anything else. And so put simply, Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything, and he is to be our everything. The reason we get out of bed, the reason we breathe, the reason that we live each day, Jesus is everything. And then the second worship prompt is in verse 16. It says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now, how can that be? How can Jesus be both root of David and also descendant of David? Well, that doesn't seem possible unless you're Jesus, fully God and fully man. You see, Jesus being the root of David speaks of his divinity, eternal, preexistent to David. But the fact that Jesus is also the descendant of David speaks of his humanity, that he is in the lineage of King David. And so in all the universe, only Jesus can make such a claim. Again, making him alone worthy of all of our worship and all of our praise. And then in the third worship prompt, Jesus calls himself the bright morning star. The bright morning star. Most likely a reference to, as you look out, you early risers, and you look on a clear morning before the sun comes up, you, you, you see a bright morning star, which isn't probably really a star. What is it? It's probably Venus. But in layman's terms, we say, hey, look at that star. And it is a herald of the fact that morning is coming and night is over. Just as Jesus, the morning star, brings the end of darkness and the dawn of his glorious kingdom. He is the bright morning star. And so in our final instructions, we are told to walk, we're told to worship, and next we're told to witness. Um, and, and it's no wonder, and I hope you felt this urgency, as we have had a front row seat to the judgment to come in graphic displays, probably a lot of times more graphic than we would like. How could we not respond to this, but with renewed zeal and sharing the gospel so that people that we love and know will not have to experience these awful, awful images that we have seen? Look at verse 10. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. In the very first sermon in this series, back on September 13th, 2020, we talked about the fact that for so many, Revelation is a sealed book. It's locked up, believed to be beyond our comprehension, and so much so we really even shouldn't go there. Let's not even open it. Let's not study it. Let's not talk about it. We'll just kind of pretend it's not even in our 66 books of Scripture. I sincerely hope that our study has proven otherwise. 
that while there certainly are things that are mysterious and difficult to understand, and I'm sure that I've gotten things wrong in this study, and one day they'll be corrected, but the very title of this book is what? Revelation. In Greek, apocalypsis, which literally means to reveal and to make known, to disclose what was previously hidden. God didn't just give us this mysterious book that couldn't be understood. What would be the point of that? It is here for a reason, and it is here to make known. And now it is our job to make it known to others as witnesses. But we're given a solemn warning about doing this. Look at verse 18 and take it to heart. It says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. There have been some very uncomfortable moments in the book of Revelation, haven't there? And things that, honestly, we wish weren't there. Much of it dealing with subjects of God's wrath and God's judgment. And there is this temptation for us to soften it, to water it down, to make it more palatable, to take away some of the rough edges and to portray our God in our own image, the way that we would want him to be as opposed to who he truly is as he has revealed himself to be. There's a, this, that's the reason for this warning. It says, don't do that. Don't tamper with the book. Your job is simply to proclaim it, not to change it. We are not to create a God in our own image or revelation in our own image. And those things that are hard or difficult or that we don't understand, we know enough about the character of our God as revealed throughout the 66 books of Scripture to say, you know what, at the end of the day, I know He is holy he is righteous, and He is good, and He is just, and He will do what is right. And for those who do change it, who tamper with it, who soften it, there are harsh consequences given to us. Similar warnings are found in other places dealing with other passages of Scripture or Scripture in general. And so let that also be a reminder to us not to tamper with the Word of God. It is sacred. So, final instructions. We are to walk, worship, witness, and lastly, we are to work. Look at verse 12. It says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. It's a really good time for us to again say that we are saved on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Beth mentioned it in her testimony. That's what Jesus meant when he said, it is finished. The debt has been paid. The debt that we could never pay on our own. No matter how good we try to be, our salvation is only by God's grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. But, church, again, let Revelation remind us we are rewarded on the basis of our works here on earth. When we appear at what is called the, the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, as it says in 1 Corinthians 3.13, each one's work will become manifest 
for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So in light of this truth, church, it would behoove us to get busy, right? To get to work doing the Father's business instead of piddling around with the things of this world that ultimately are going to be burned up. Be interesting if we could see from a heavenly perspective what percentage of our works are those piddling things that have nothing to do with eternity and those that will be burned up and those that will last through the fire for all eternity. You know, some of you have retirement portfolios, catalogs of your earthly investments, stocks, bonds, precious metals, maybe some cryptocurrency, some real estate, baseball cards. (laughs) But I wonder, what does your eternal portfolio look like? The catalog of your eternal rewards, and which do you think about the most? Because at the end of the day, it's those works. Those are the only things that are going to last through the judgment seat of Christ, and they are going to last for all eternity. So church, invest well and invest now, for the time is short. So those are the final instructions, to walk, to worship, to witness, and to work. Next, next, let's look quickly at the final invitation given to us in this book. Revelation's full of invitations, isn't it? God pleading with sinful humanity to repent, to turn, so that they do not have to experience God's judgment and God's wrath. And so let's look first of all at verse 17, um, kind of a confusing verse. Uh, the Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. And so actually there are two different invitations in this verse. The first invitation is given by the Spirit and by the church to Jesus, in which they plead with Him. Oh, would you please come? Isn't that our heart's cry this morning? Would you please come? Bring your kingdom. Make everything right the way that it should be. But the second invitation in this verse is given by Jesus to the lost. And he puts the invitation in terms of having our spiritual thirst quenched, for it is only the free living water that Jesus provides that can quench this thirst. And I love C.S. Lewis. Any C.S. Lewis fans out there? In his book, The Silver Chair, there's a young girl named Jill who is speaking with the lion Aslan who represents Jesus. And they have this dialogue. And it goes like this. It says, Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. 
Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said? I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Church, there is no other stream, is there? And the time to drink is now. Because as it says in verse 11, let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Now, at first glance, it's like, I, I don't understand what's this all about, but its meaning really is quite simple in the context of invitation. It, it is a solemn warning that whoever you are and whatever you are doing when Jesus returns is what you will be for all eternity. So the time to change, the time to drink from the well of living water is now while there's still opportunity because there will come a time when that opportunity is over and who you are is who you will be for all eternity. And so Jesus pleads with us to accept the invitation to partake of living water and to do it now because he is in fact coming soon. And so we have the final features of the new Jerusalem, the final instructions, the final invitation, and now a final benediction, the last two verses. Last words matter, right? They have a special weightiness to them. Well, what are the last words of Jesus in the canon of Scripture? Look at verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. That's what Jesus wants to leave with us. The final words of Jesus speak of the eminency of his return. The eminency of that, that word simply means he could come at any time. The rapture of the church. Before this sermon is over, we could be raptured at any time. There is nothing else on the prophetic calendar that has to happen before the rapture. That's what makes it imminent. That's why it is soon. We don't know if soon means in two minutes or another 2,000 years, but as far as we're concerned, in its imminence, it's soon. And I don't care if you live to be 95 years old. When you get to that 95th year and you're on your deathbed, it seems soon, doesn't it? This is the last thought that Jesus wants to leave with us in Revelation. And if you notice, this is the third time in this chapter that he's made this statement. Did you notice that? I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. So it's evident that he wants to make sure that his point is crystal clear. And the Apostle John has two last thoughts. That was Jesus' last or thoughts and words. Now the Apostle John, I don't know why he gets two. Jesus got one, the Apostle John got two. But first, in response to this imminency of Jesus' return, John says in the second half of verse 20, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The first of the final words of the Apostle John speak to his heartfelt desire to be with Jesus. We had communion this morning, didn't we? That's a foretaste, a taste of 
what is to come when we have ultimate communion. With all of creation, John is groaning on the island of Patmos. He's an old man, probably been tortured at some point, various points as an apostle, a lot of heartache, a lot of pain, and he is so ready to go home. He desperately wants Jesus to return. And church, this should be the absolute heartfelt desire of every single believer. If you're one who says, well, I don't want Jesus to return until, and fill in the blank, you really don't get it. You really don't get it. That's a, by the way, that's a first world kind of answer. And that, what that really does is reveal just how addicted we are to comfort. Most of the world is pleading this morning, oh, would you come quickly? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. See, the point is that when Jesus returns, it's not about the rewards, it's not about the streets of gold, it's not about the river and the tree, it's about Jesus and the fact that we will be with him. And everything else pales in comparison to that. John got it, and so he says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And the, the second of the final words of John are found in verse 21. The book ends this way. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. The second of the final words of the Apostle John speak of God's amazing grace toward all, which is pretty interesting to me that the final word in Revelation is what? It's grace. I guess technically it's amen. The theme is grace. After all the seals, the trumpets, the bulls, the death, destruction, the judgment, the wrath, we are reminded that God has shown to every single human being wonderful, marvelous, matchless grace that we do not deserve. The fact that he did not instantaneously wipe us all off the planet, giving us what we justly deserved is evidence of his amazing grace. Instead, he made the way for our salvation, and he has invited us to this salvation. The question now is, what will we do with that invitation to experience God's amazing grace? And so in the final chapter, final features of the New Jerusalem, final instructions, final invitation, and a final benediction. And to close the series, I'd like us to go back where we started, to chapter 1, the prologue to the book in chapter 1. And you know what? Um, there's a, the, the part of this that says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. I would like us to do that. Would you stand with me? And we are going to read aloud the words of the prologue that we started with in Revelation chapter 1. Please read with me. It should be on the screen. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And so, Father, we thank you for this journey. We thank you for what we have learned. But again, Father, it is not our desire merely to learn. It is our desire to be transformed. 
And so would you make us more like Jesus today than we were yesterday? May you use your word to wash us, to cleanse us, to be that pure bride, ready and expectant for your return. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.